Hello, I'm Kristen Perisonotto. And I'm Hannah Ferguson, and we're co-founders of Cheek Media Co. This is the Weekly Cheek Podcast. To make a villain out of a child who, sure, they're not, I'm not saying they're behaving well, but they've been given no opportunity in life. So, you know, I think speaking to the, you know, the obligations of the public generally, I mean, that's just base level humanity stuff. Welcome back to the Weekly Cheek podcast. We are here with Michael Berkman today, the member for Maywa. He's in the Greens, Queensland Greens, um, in the state government. So thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. No worries. Uh, So you have been in the past accused of being, and I put this in quotes, LMP passing by someone um, in the political spheres. (laughs) <laughs> threatening introduction. Yeah. Um, do you think people are surprised to see someone who looks like you in the Greens party? Yeah, look, maybe they are, but I, I think, you know, that, that speaks just directly to the, you know, the incredibly superficial tone of political debate and conversation. I mean, I heard mm-hmm. this, I've heard this put um, in the context of the last state election, someone, again, I think it was someone in, in media um, made the observation that, um, that the LNP didn't feel like they knew what to do with me because I didn't look or sound like a radical green, which sure, if that's their take, whatever, I'm not Mm going to, I'll leave people to their own opinions. But if we're really, if that's actually the content of where you want to play your politics, if they Mm -hmm. need to try and find a way to attack the greens on the basis that I, you know, look and sound a certain way, well, you know, good luck, go for broke. But I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, I don't, I don't come to politics as a traditional politician. Like, yes, my background's kind of typical in the sense that I, you know, I worked in law before I was elected. Um, sure, there are way too many lawyers in politics generally. Um, but look, to, I don't know, to suggest that I'm, I'm somehow, uh, you know, an LNP in Greens clothing or vice versa, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that, but mm-hmm. um, it absolutely doesn't reflect, you know, my politics or the purpose or, or goals that I bring bring to this job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, um, well, a lot of the time when we look at LNP or liberal and federal level um, politicians, they often are career politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them have kind of come straight out of uni into the job. Do you believe in legislating term limits? Do you think that is something that would do good? That's a really good question. And it's one that, I mean, I've had some some reason to kind of contemplate that in the context of a state parliament that's actually got a fair, um, you know, fairly shallow pool of experience in some ways. Like the, the fact that um, that we had such an enormous turnover at the 2012 and then the 2015 election has meant that a, a lot of, and, and you know, this is commentary that, that others have made, other state parliamentary colleagues, um, the parliament lost a lot of experience at that point. Now, I'm not going to say that's an inherently good or bad thing, but it means that, um, you know, from, from the commentary others have made, it's meant that, um, you know, there's a lot more kind of gamesmanship and it, it's, you know, the, the, the activity of parliament is perhaps even more, you know, performative and, and perfunctory than it was prior to that kind of loss of, of experienced MP. So, um, I don't know. I think, I think it's really important that we continue to get fresh blood, but I don't, I mean, term limits specifically, um, not, it's not an entirely bad idea. I don't think, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, maybe, 
you know, in some ways for, you know, for sitting MPs, it's, it's nice to have the notion of an end point to your time in parliament rather than kind of carrying on with this, um, you know, the process of self-preservation that we see so many MPs engaged with. Mm -hmm. So we interviewed uh, John O'Shree a couple of mm. weeks ago, and he said that he feels that even in the, you know, I guess compared to a lot of people, relatively short time he's been in council, he has felt that he has kind of gotten less, a little bit more conservative in the way that he kind of treats his role. You know, he sometimes feels that he pulls back a little bit and I'm not quoting him, but this is essentially what he was mm. saying um, based on his experience and how people have reacted in politics and in the public. Do you feel that that's happened to you at all in your, in your I guess, what are you up to? One and a bit term? Two yeah. And a bit? yeah, one and a bit. One and a bit. One and a bit. Yeah, it's only been sort of three and a half years. Um, look, I... I don't know that I've had quite the same experience, uh, but I'd put that up, chalk that up more to the fact that I I didn't come into it with such a clear, um, you know, clear MO as Jono has. Like he really arrived on on the scene in council and shook things up in a big way, and you know, ruffled a lot of feathers and and copped a lot of flack for it. So I can completely understand that you know that that's been his experience. Um, I mean, I've been really, I found it really fascinating at the beginning of this term, having had Amy McMahon, you know, join me. Um, it's fantastic to have a colleague in, in Parliament for so many reasons, but it's been so fascinating for me to see her, see all these processes, all of the formal processes of Parliament with fresh eyes. Mm. Um, and it's made me realise just how much of the, you know, the bollocks of Parliament I've been desensitised to, because like, it really is, you know, so much of what happens in there is just going through the motions, you know, every, well, effectively every decision that's, that's kind of made in parliament is actually made elsewhere. It's, it's a, it's, you know, a process of formalizing decisions that, um, you know, that governments and stakeholders have made elsewhere. And so, you know, I, I guess I was, I came into politics, my involvement, you know, kind of brought a bit of cynicism with it. Um, but then yes, actually being in parliament and seeing just, um, just how little actually happens in the house blew my mind. But then watching Amy see all this again has made me realize just that over that three years and a bit, um, I've become used to it. So yeah, that's, mm -hmm. it, it, I think, um, you know, the way that we in this job can kind of normalize very, very strange aspects of the political system is, um, it's important to try and step back from that and keep ourselves grounded in, you know, in the community and in the real world. Yeah, for sure. Do you see a distinction between how Amy's been treated when she's entered Parliament to how you were treated when you stepped in? Yeah, absolutely. It's been absolutely staggering. Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, I, like, I there are two there are two sides to it. I think, as in two, not two sides to it. There are two um, main reasons that I'm. I, I think I'm seeing the government in particular approach Amy differently. Um, like, first of all, she. You know, she is um, more of a kind of political outsider than I am. As you know, you know, I show up um, as someone with a legal background who's used to wearing a suit and looks, you know, this passing LNP mm -hmm. suggestion you made before. That, that, that <laughs> means I, yeah. yeah, yeah, someone else's <laughs> suggestion. Yeah. Um, so, like, I just show up in Parliament and, and doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm not kind of, uh, you know, raising any eyebrows in that respect. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, Amy is not... You know, she's first of all, she's not a man. Mm -hmm. She's, you know, she's younger. 
she you know doesn't come from a legal background so she immediately i guess just was treated like more of an outsider by parliament but i think the main thing that i've seen or, or this is my assumption at least is that because she took a seat off labor they are out for blood it is wild the way that she's been treated by really senior government members um yeah the conduct of labor mps in the chamber has just been really quite shocking so i think there's a um, you know, there is kind of an element of, um, you know, it, it's a gendered response in some ways, but it's also speaks to the kind of entitlement that, that the government feels to, you know, to that seat in particular. Yes. Um, and speaking of that, we're actually interviewing Amy this afternoon. Oh, um, so we'll talk to her more about that from her perspective um, coming in two weeks for listeners. Uh, so we have seen, I've watched a few, you know, videos and clips and things from Parliament mm -hmm. and have seen a lot of what you're talking about. And I've noticed that some of the time you're standing up and kind of having to, um, I don't want to say stand up for, but kind of be, you know, batting for Amy mm -hmm. in, in those situations. And I, when I look at that, I wonder if that's something that you, that's a role that you take on in a much larger sense as, you know, someone who is, you know, allegedly LNP passing, someone who holds a lot of privilege in that kind of area. Do you feel that your role within the Greens is different to someone who, you know, doesn't have the legal background, um, you know, is not a man, etc.? Do you feel that your role might be different to someone in another position? Uh, look, not necessarily. I mean, I've I've certainly, you know, from my first speech in Parliament, I've been very upfront about the fact that I arrived there with a with you know sitting on a, a whole pile of privilege, and that's you know that's something that comes with obligation to um, you know to use it and to be an ally in any way you can. But I think, um, I mean, at the at the moment, I think any um, you know any kind of differentiation in the roles that we might play in there as two Greens MPs, like I simply have a bit more experience in the House, mm -hmm. um, which I hope has made life a bit easier for Amy in arriving and trying to, you know, trying to, you know, find, learn the ropes a little bit. Um, but no, I don't. I mean, I've certainly felt more, um, more compelled when it's not me on my feet and when I'm watching, you know, a good friend and colleague get, you know, bagged unceremoniously on the floor. That makes me far more inclined to kind of engage in the, you know, the, the, you know the bad behaviour we're so used to seeing in houses of parliament. Um, but I've, you know, generally got zero inclination to to engage in the, the to and fro. You know, the the interjection on the floor. But um, yeah, but it's easier to feel like I'm a bit pushed to my limits in you know coming in in defence of, of of a good friend in there. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes, a bit like that. <laughs> I've seen <laughs> enough videos. Mm. Um, you mentioned earlier that Amy took her took her seat from a Labor uh, MP mm. and you took yours from an LMP in an LMP seat, didn't you? And I guess Notionally. My, yeah. <laughs> um, and not to bring it back to this one more time, but do you think that part of that can be attributed to the fact that you're LMP passing? Uh, look, I'd, I mean, I'd make the point that Maywad didn't exist as a seat before, like I was the, the inaugural member for the seat. So it was like notionally on, you know, certain assumptions that mm. were made about the demographic for the new, you know, newly distributed boundaries. It was, um, it was notionally an LNP seat, but it was a very marginal seat. Um, so I, I don't think, um, like, I think there are a lot of factors that went into our, you know, our win in Maywa in 2017, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it so much, you know, I wouldn't attribute that to identity politics in any way, really. I think there were a few really salient issues, like development in particular was such a big issue at that particular point in time. And 
and you know a lot of a lot of folks around the neighbourhood were turning to recognise that the that the Greens' policy on you know reform of the planning system really spoke to the particular concerns they had. Um, you know, I think climate and coal was a huge part of that campaign as well. So, I mean, perhaps in some ways my, my background working in, because, you know, I say I came from a legal background, but I was in the community legal sector working, um, you know, working for a whole range of clients, community groups and farmers and, uh, you know, all sorts of folks who were um, trying to use the legal system to, you know, to stop coal mines and gas projects and to try and protect, you know, the reef, for example, from the impacts of climate change. So, yeah. Um, so I think that you know that particular experience maybe resonated with people a bit more more so than just the simple fact of of being a lawyer. Um, but yeah, I, more than anything, the the reason we broke through here in 2017 was just the scale of our field campaign and being able to get people you know at their door, mm -hmm. have conversations and find out you know not just tell them what we were on about, but actually finding out what they were concerned about and and kind of allowing you know allowing us to represent that in our in our campaign but also um give a sense of how greens values fit in amongst their particular concerns and coming from a background in you know community legal center work and as an environmental lawyer in public interest sort of matters mm. do you feel that you're that past role or in this current role you're sort of more able to affect change oh that's a really good question um and not one that i think i can give a yeah. direct answer to like um, I mean, sure, like there, there's a sense in which uh, any any particular case, like legal matters, you know, they have a lifespan. They they start and they finish, and you get a very clear outcome. So, in some respects, um, it's you know maybe you get a more definitive outcome in those matters. But it's you know certainly my experience was that um, we were you know one of the barristers we worked with always had this this great saying that we were experts at. Um, uh, <laughs> glorious victories and pyrrhic defeats um which was kind of the way it, you know there, there were a lot more um a lot more tough outcomes to deal with than there were good ones and more often than not even if we got a good outcome in a case we're up against really well resourced opponents who would just take it on appeal and exhaust every legal avenue but it's um yeah it, i guess they're always very um isolated cases the issues you're dealing with in court are really constrained. So I think there's much more scope for change in, you know, in politics broadly. Uh, that's not to say that I haven't had plenty of frustration in this role as well, trying to trying to affect change, especially in circumstances where we've got, you know, one house of parliament in Queensland, a majority government. You know, it really is, um, you know, it's an incredibly autocratic way for governance to happen. In a, so we have obviously have a um, Labor government in Queensland and quite a strong Labor government at the moment. What is the what do you see as the Greens' main role when you are in a Labor government or I guess a Labor majority government? Yeah, just doing all we can to hold them to account and you know to, to I guess continue to point to the holes in in the rhetoric you know or the gap between their rhetoric and their action. I mean we we continue to hear. Um, you know, time and again, they'll just refer back to these big, you know, headlining goals around, you know, renewables and transition or whatever it might be, but none of it actually means a great deal on the ground. Um, you know, I, there's no way, you know, for example, one of one of the messages that I continue to try and break through with is that, you know, they've got this 50% um, by 2030 renewable, renewable energy target, but that, that absolutely can't be achieved unless they're going to retire some of our coal-fired power stations early. So, 
you know, trying to trying to just get that kind of message through to people on on discrete issues is important. But um, I think I, I feel like my role for the last few years has been a, a bit. Um, you've got to zoom out a bit more to really find the the right. I don't know the right level for engaging with people, and I, I guess just making making the broader point that you know politics and government should be there to actually serve the interests of people, but our system is not at all oriented that way at the moment. You know, the closeness between government and business interests means that they're consistently making decisions in the interests of you know whether it's donors or just you know the the broader you know air quotes here economy. You know th that that persistent push for economic growth as the singular target um mm -hmm. means that people people get a raw deal you know we're like we're a super wealthy state in queensland and we've already squandered a really major resources boom here in recent years and and you know there's scope for us to claw that back if the government was just prepared to start making calls in the interest of people um rather than the profits of you know the big miners um you know big developers and big banks like we will will consistently put forward proposals for how we could claw back a bit more from those you know those big and very very wealthy business interests um and and i guess that's you know that's our job is to is to frame the broader system in a way that shows that it's imbalanced and we can push that balance back in favor of of ordinary people and you know a sustainable future because uh, you know along with um along with people being shortchanged the you know the environmental cost of of kind of you know um unabated um you know business activity and and what that means for the climate it's really it's really important for us to keep focused on that at the same time i think um one of the uh, i guess reasons that people are not too keen to vote in favor of climate action is because either they or people they know um, family friends work in areas that are you know full of workers who work on coal fire stations. And I know that Labor at the moment is talking a lot about a just transition. Mm. Uh, what, and you spoke earlier just before about retiring some coal stations early. Mm. What would you, What I guess, what is the Greens or what is your opinion or plan on kind of making sure that those workers have somewhere to go, the displaced workers? Yeah, there are plenty of models we could look at. I mean, obviously, you know, Germany kind of you know, sits head and shoulders above the rest in terms of the way they they've done this. Um, you know, providing employment opportunities for people who work in these sectors who who aren't ready to retire, but on the other hand, providing the option for you know for early retirement and for you know a pension um, for for folks who are ready to go. Like we we look at um, you know we've had this this big explosion at the Callard coal-fired power station the other week, and we've now the government's now got to decide whether they're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars repairing and getting this this back online or are there better ways that we can invest in you know in the future of our energy system and so like if they were to make a sensible decision and not try and expand the life of, of this power power station or any other um, like there are sensible ways to do that whether that's looking at you know one bit of infrastructure at a time as we as we're going through a staged retirement process you know there are ways to offer you know, offer certainty to, to employees there. So you know, if you look across the entire coal-fired power generation sector, having like a pooled redundancy scheme so that, you know, folks, again, folks who are closer to the end of their career can choose to exit a little bit earlier. Those who are early career, I mean, there should be obviously retraining options available for people. But if they can be 
you know, kept in the system and continue to do their same job at the same facility for as long as they're, you know, as long as they're around. The main thing is that there needs to be a plan. There just actually has to be a plan for when we're going to phase out these bits of infrastructure. We've been really explicit in saying that that has to happen by 2030 and we can get to 100% renewables here in Queensland by 2030. Um, but unless you're having honest conversations with the communities as a whole who rely on these, you know, these sectors, whether it's the generation sector or, or thermal coal mining, you have to be honest about the future of, you know, the future of our energy systems and our resource sector. Um, and it's not a cop out to say that those communities have to be central to making those decisions because they do. Any kind of, you know, top down approach um, to, you know, to plotting a course through the transition is going to leave communities, um, you know, it's going to it's going to put them offside mm -hmm. and and is a you know path doomed to failure. But we can't get away with governments pretending that everything's hunky dory and and we're going to continue to dig up thermal coal and burn it indefinitely, which seems to seems to more or less be the approach at the moment. Yeah, I think that, yeah, the, I think the fear that a lot of these workers face in, you know, probably usually more rural areas, rural parts of Queensland um, is what is, from my perspective, stopping them from voting in favour of the of climate action. So I think that, um, yeah, your description has been, been really, really good, I think. Cool. Great, great job. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Um, I was also looking at, you know, the youth justice amendments and the way that um, the way that politicians have sort of knee-jerk reactions to mm -hmm. the media and yeah. their publishing of statistics that are usually way off, especially in the youth justice sort of amendment bill sector and, and area. What do you think the role is of politicians in acting quickly in response to these sorts of media, this sort of media coverage of, of certain issues? And how do you keep the public engaged enough to sort of see through um, you know, an article by the Courier Mail that's claiming, you know, youth crime is skyrocketing. Like, what do you mm. think politicians' responsibility is and what do you think the public's responsibility is? Oh, look, uh, I think uh, the one the one kind of player you didn't mention there is the responsibility of, you know, of the media and of journalists. Um, you know, obviously, I think the Murdoch media has got a lot to, a lot to answer for in terms of the way that they persistently pursue a, a political agenda. But... Look, we as as politicians, um, like our responsibility is to actually be, you know, steadfast in our, you know, in our um, deference to the facts and the reality rather than the rhetoric. Um, you know, youth justice is a is a classic example for this, where there, there's no there's no denying that the system at the moment isn't really working, um, and um, but at the same time. It's really easy for you know for fearmongering to you know to take over because like the, the stats appear to be pretty clear that there has been a decline over time in youth offending, um, but what the systems failed to do is to address um, address recidivism and and so it's it's persistently you know we're headed down this path where um, it is a smaller and smaller group of the most disadvantaged kids in society who you know who are the focus of the government's efforts. You know the hardcore, the hard nuts, as they describe them. It's just the the framing is all wrong. To to make a villain out of a child, who, sure, they're not. I'm not saying they're behaving well, but they they've been given no opportunity in life. So, you know, I think speaking to the you know the obligations of the public generally. I mean, that's just base level humanity stuff. 
like let's act with compassion and you know and recognize you know rather than rather than needing to find a villain in you know in whatever you know whatever sector of the community it is you're looking at we need to actually show a bit of compassion and recognize that you know intergenerational trauma is, is at the base of a lot of this which flows through to the kinds of economic disadvantage um educational disengagement um you know these kids are living in poverty um and they don't have the support that they need to actually get a leg up in life so and but all of this is kind of clear in the evidence too so i mean i'll wrap it up i could talk about this stuff forever but but just to say that um governments decision makers need to actually look at the evidence what we're hearing from experts is that you cannot punish your way out of this kind of youth offending it's just not going to work i mean these kids are at an age where their brains haven't developed properly they don't understand cause and effect that they have no idea like the the changes that were made in law recently to to you know crack down on crime don't mean anything to these kids it's just going to mean they're more likely to end up incarcerated which the evidence tells us with in no uncertain terms that's going to mean they're more likely to reoffend in the future so we you know we we're, we're on a on an absolutely doomed course at the moment in terms of actually addressing youth crime in a meaningful way there is no short term no immediate way to fix it but to to continue on the path we're on is only going to make it worse over time yeah and i guess that sort of leads you know we've discussed like youth justice and climate action which are big ticket issues at the moment and things like raising the criminal age of responsibility and, and these sorts of issues and i guess my question to you which is obviously a really complicated long question but you know what do you think your role is in determining you know whether to take an all or nothing approach when um making amendments to legislation or you know passing bills in terms of at what point do you sort of concede on certain amendments in order to get the larger bill through? And at what point do you say it's all or nothing in terms of we want everything clearly passed? So how do you sort of manage and being pragmatic in passing legislation and amendments? Yeah, look, I, I, to start with, that's really not a consideration in Queensland Parliament because the government does whatever they see fit, you know, as they see fit. It's not, you know, every bill that's put up, every amendment that they... Um, choose to put up is passed with a majority, with a government majority. So they don't need to look to the crossbench or the opposition for support on any piece of legislation or amendment. Um, th this kind of this argument about the you know the the perfect being the enemy of the good, um, like we see that thrown up so often by Labor in particular, and and especially when they want to try and trash talk on climate change and on emissions reduction emissions trading legislation. Uh, but again, it doesn't. You know, this, this is an argument without any substance and it's a fig leaf for them to um, try and deflect from the fact that they as a state government who have been in power for all but five of the last 30 years have not gone anywhere near meeting public expectation on addressing climate change. And federally, you know, going back to the, you know, the proposal put up by Rudd that wasn't supported by the Greens because the government at that point refused to negotiate with the Greens. They would only negotiate um, with the LNP, which meant we came out with really cooked legislation. It was a bad scheme that would have locked in um, emissions and and huge amounts of compensation for some of the biggest polluters. So, you know, I absolutely support the party's decision not, um, not getting behind that legislation, but they always gloss over the fact that, yes, we said no to that because it was bad. Um, and that's not a case of perfect being the enemy of the good. That was just bad legislation. But then only, uh, only a couple of years later, when we were in minority government, when Labor actually needed to rely on our vote to get legislation through. 
we passed world-leading emissions reduction legislation. It was, it was literally the best that was available anywhere in the world at the time. Now, the fact that the LNP then, when Abbott took government, repealed it, look, you know, anyone who wants to point fingers at the Greens about that needs to take a good hard look at themselves because, you know, we were actually instrumental in seeing world-leading legislation come through. We were not uh, in any way at fault for saying that, you know, a shit scheme was shit. Soundbite. Um, I guess one of the other questions that I had that I was sort of ruminating on this morning was, would you say that you're sort of, for the Greens and for you as an individual, um, the biggest sort of criticism, commentary and backlash comes from Labor or the LNP? Uh, I think it's quite clearly Labor. Like, Labor seems to hate us more than they hate the LNP, um, which is kind of... Uh, it's hard to make sense of it sometimes. Um, but, yeah, I I think... Um, yeah, they, they both kind of like to make a caricature of the Greens, uh, which is an odd... It's an odd way to go about political engagement. But I think... Um, yeah, I think Labor's been kind of stuck in this space where they, you know, they are trying to, you know, appease all stakeholders in a way that's kind of dishonest. You know, the, the way that... Everyone refers back to the 2019 election where they were trying simultaneously to, you know, to speak to you know, inner city voters and coal communities and telling them completely different things and somehow expecting that to fly. Um, you know, my my take is that, you know, rather than, um, you know, rather than attributing it all to their refusal to back in coal all the way, we need to actually just focus on what what they didn't say. You know, all those honest conversations that they had to have. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think the community as a whole is going to respond to honesty rather than you know um, political chicanery and and sound bites. Um, but yeah, look, I don't know the, the LNP. I should say the LNP, especially in Queensland, does exactly the same. You know, being stuck torn between trying to reach their traditional nationals base as well as the you know the small you know the liberals. Um, they're doing a you know. <laughs> They're doing a pretty rough job of that as well, which is kind of why they look like they're going to be stuck in opposition forever at this point. Um, mm-hmm. I see it seems to me that it usually depends on who's kind of got the majority at the time. Like I, I often see a lot of um, your, you know, more polarising um, conservative figures talking about, like I saw a line in The Australian the other day, someone talking about the Labor-Greens-Turnbull coalition um, which I was like, what are you on about, mate? <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that a lot of the time I see on a federal level, a lot of, a lot of the coalition um, parliamentarians lumping the Greens and Labor together when it, when it suits them because they want to say that, um, you know, usually they want to say that Labor has kind of, you know, gone off, oh, so extreme. They're so radical. Look at them over there with the Greens. So hmm. I think it always depends and obviously the... Um, like we never, we can't do an episode without talking about Rupert Murdoch, who you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the time does really have something to do with how the media paints it, which is, I mean, at this point, I don't really know the solution aside from we always try to tell, you know, our people who um, interact with us to always check your sources and have a look at who writes everything. Because mm-hmm. even though we do have um, a Labor government in Queensland, we still have, you know, almost 80% of our newspapers and outlets are owned by Rupert Murdoch. So yep. I think that a lot of the time it's some um, people will respond to honesty, but it's 
like how do how do people know what is honest? Um, and I guess mm -hmm. that's it's not really a question that you need to answer because it's a bit hard to it's yeah. hard to tell um, because you know how how do we know you know who's saying what? How can we know which media outlets to trust? Um, mm -hmm. Do you find that I know that the Greens do have do try to connect with the community quite in a me more meaningful way? Do you find that you do need to kind of make sure most of those communication is through your own channels? Do you feel that the media is going to represent you in a legitimate way or what's, how do you kind of go about that? Yeah, look, it's, it's a persistent challenge trying to, I mean, in some ways it doesn't really matter what we're doing politically if people don't know about it. So yes, we need to continue to try and engage with the media. And um, I mean, in some ways we've got no hesitation in you know, picking a fight that the Korea Mail is going to, you know, come out swinging against us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in some ways, that that kind of is is part of the process of, um, you know, politicising issues and and trying to kind of engage in a in a distant process of political education by, you know, by demonstrating the fights that are going on. Um, you know, if we if we're proposing, you know, the great example out of the state election campaign, we're proposing. Um, a really massive shift in um, in royalties, so that the community could benefit more from you know from the resources of the state, and the Queensland Resource Council, you know, they came out trying to smack us down as they always do. But um, and that's fine, you know, if they want to if they want to paint us as the enemy, we're happy for them to be ours. Um, but look, I, I think we really do um, much more effectively in, in engaging people and kind of speaking to the material, you know circumstances and needs of their life when we can when we can do it one-on-one -on -one. Mm -hmm. um and you know the kind of um you know the the really i guess coarse um politics that's painted through the media at a high level is is, is a long way from that um so yeah this is why I, I think field campaigning and that really direct personal political engagement is so important for us you know um and and outside of election campaigns as well you know we've worked really hard my staff and I over the last few years to be to be as accessible here in the electorate office as we can be and to to have honest conversations with the community about every issue that you know that we think is big and that's affecting people's lives on the ground here in Maywa but also you know those statewide issues if we're able to you know if we're able to find a good forum to have a conversation wonderful i think we're out of time Thank you. And I think that's a really good note to end yeah, as well. <laughs> Do you have anything we can um, link anything in the description for for listeners? Is there anything that you would like to leave them with? Hmm. Um, look, uh, I, I probably should have something on hand for the moments like these, shouldn't I? That's but right. I don't know. Like, just maybe a, check be out. a beacon of hope. If yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, look. Okay. How's this for a beacon of hope? Like we, I mean, Queensland. You know, our political discourse is really hamstrung by the fact that we've got only one house. There's no, there's no political representation that gives a kind of a proportionate representation for the state. But um, we've year on year, I think we've seen support for the major parties decline. You know, with the the exception of a little blip for you know COVID support, where you know everyone kind of retreated to their conventional um, support um, support positions. But I think. Um, we are headed to a point where minority government in Queensland is going to become the norm. Um, and in a, in a unicameral parliament, I'm firmly of the view that that's, that's got to be a good thing. That's got to require all of the political players to come together in a more, um, 
in a more nuanced and a more deliberative kind of discussion about what direction the state's going to head in. So, um, yeah, if it feels bleak in Queensland politics at the moment, it is, but it doesn't have to be. Thank you. Nice. Thank you. So <laughs> and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. If you found us just totally relatable and quirky, come back next Wednesday for a new episode. Until then, head to cheekmedia.com.au to tide you over until then. Bye. Goodbye. Ha, ha, ha.